Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs. And I'm Cody Sims. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. We appreciate you tuning in, sharing this episode, and if you feel like it, leaving us a review to help more people find out about us so they can figure out where they fit in addressing the problem of climate change. Today's guest is Jason Aramburu, CEO and co-founder of Climate Robotics which makes infield agricultural machinery that converts crop residue to biochar and sequesters it in the soil. I was looking forward to today's conversation with Jason because I've been wanting to learn more about biochar and Climate Robotics is building a distributed biochar production system. I'm a big fan of distributed systems in general, and it's clear to me that our industrial agricultural practices are in need of change in terms of becoming more regenerative. So I was interested to learn more about how climate robotics is enabling farmers to use the waste that's on their fields and turn it into a carbon sink while improving the quality of their topsoil in the process. Jason and I have a nice conversation about his background, biochar's origins as an indigenous practice dating back millennia, the chemistry of biochar, the climate robotics solution, and his company's business model. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you today for a few reasons. One, I'm excited to learn more about biochar as a climate solution. And two, I'm interested in understanding how farmers and the agriculture industry in general are are working to adopt new technologies and what that looks like. So maybe before we jump into all of that, tell us a little bit about you. How did you come to start to work on the problem of creating new soil for for the future of how we grow crops? Oh, sure. Well, my academic background is really in ecology and environmental science. I studied at Princeton and I studied with a fellow named Steve Pakala, a professor at Princeton, who is really active in carbon sequestration. He was one of the first kind of university level folks to really get into carbon capture and storage. He's also an ecologist and a field scientist by background. And so a lot of his research also spans nutrient cycling and carbon sequestration in the field. And a lot of his work really inspired me. And he produced a paper when I was at Princeton called the carbon wedges that showed, you know, really of our annual emissions as a species, how you could divide it into individual wedges of, I think, about a gigaton in size and kind of knock those out with either new or existing technology. And I felt like it really catalyzed the problem. And I saw clearly how big of an impact agriculture made, you know, of that segment. And then fast forward, I was doing thesis research down at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama. And I was in the field researching nutrient cycling, actually, in the rainforest. And that's where I first learned about biochar. Biochar production is, it's actually an indigenous practice that farmers in the Amazon have been doing for thousands of years. And there's actually traditions of it outside the Amazon as well, in Asia, many different regions, places where farmers struggle with soil acidity and nutrient retention. You often see an indigenous practice of burying charcoal in the soil because they very astutely realized it 
helped the soil to retain nutrients. It made the crops hardier, healthier, and grow bigger. And so I thought this was really fascinating, purely from the agronomic perspective. It was a very cheap way to increase the nutrient holding capacity of the soil. And as I started digging in deeper, I learned that it was also being investigated as a carbon sequestration tool. The theory being, well, if indigenous people in the Amazon did this 2000 years ago, and you can go and see the charcoal in the ground today, you can actually measure the decomposition today, that means that the carbon stored in that biochar is still there even millennia later. And I thought that was very compelling. And I realized this was something I really wanted to dedicate my life to. And I first started actually working with farmers over in East Africa. I got a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to test small-scale biochar production with smallholder farmers in East Africa. And these were farmers mainly growing corn and sugarcane. And we got tremendous results by producing biochar from residues that they were generating in field and combining it with either the chemical fertilizers they were already using or organic alternatives. In many cases, we were seeing a 2x or greater increase in crop yield in those regions. And you know, I would say at that point, I was really convinced of the agronomic impact of biochar and the potential for it all over the world. And then I think you have some other things that you worked on. You went and built a company in smart irrigation that went through Y Combinator. You ended up as the, you know, running venture capital for a Chinese search engine, as far as I understand. Maybe help us understand then how you ended up ultimately building climate robotics today. Yeah, well, I've had a pretty extensive career, you know, in a lot of different fields. I've always really been interested in leveraging technology for improving agricultural productivity. And most of my work has really centered on that field. So yes, I've worked in the soil sensor space. I have worked also in the venture capital side, looking at different applications of agricultural technology and robotics. I, I did work for Baidu, which is actually the largest robotics company in the world, you know, by dollars invested and by progress. And I've always been interested in how we can use technology to, to improve agriculture. You know, I, I like to straddle the line often between venture and operating as well. I think, you know, having that perspective of both sides has proven to be really valuable and understanding the dynamic. I, I think, you know, a lot of great VCs are also operators. A lot aren't as well, but I think it's great to have that perspective. But in terms of how I came to start Climate Robotics, so I was lucky early in my career to connect with a very visionary scientist, Dr. James Lovelock, who, who recently passed away. And he was one of the first people to posit that biochar could be a climate or carbon sequestration tool. He was actually one of the first people to popularize this concept. And in many ways, his ideas were incredibly ahead of their time. I mean, people dismissed his ideas, and many of them turned out to be absolutely spot on correct. And I was talking to him, and we were talking about biochar, and we had a conversation, and we both agreed, well, to really make an impact, we have to get this into row crops, corn, wheat, beans, cotton, rice, because those represent multiple orders of magnitude, a scale greater than value-added crops. And the reality is today, most biochar application, it's in very expensive, high-value crops, trees, nuts, fruits, and vegetables. And that represents maybe one or $2 billion market cap. Row crops in the US are a trillion dollar market cap. And so 
we were thinking, hey, you know, really for this to work, it has to get into row crops. And the reality is that traditional approaches are far too expensive. A corn farmer often has 10 or $20 per acre margins. There's no way they can afford biochar at 600 or $1,000 a ton. And Dr. Lovelock, his comment was, well, the problem is the, the production approach. These systems, I believe his words were, they need to operate more like grazers. They need to operate like, you know, whales or livestock, which is minimizing the cost of harvesting, processing the material in field into the end product. And that comment resonated with me. I mean, this was probably 10 or 12 years ago that I was talking to him. And that comment always resonated with me because it just made so much intuitive sense. Why would you build a large plant to mass produce carbon sequestration? I mean, it just, it never really made sense to me. The embodied carbon is huge. The logistics and the supply chain are huge. To me, that mentality always felt like the same mentality that has gotten us into this problem of let's just build it bigger. Let's just build it bigger and bigger. And, you know, who cares what the impacts are? And that comment really stuck with me. I had always wanted to find a way to actually realize that concept. And it was probably three years ago or so, I was uh, having a beer with my good friend, Morgan Williams. And Morgan has been in the biochar sector about as long as I have. We we originally met probably 15 years ago at a biochar conference or environmental conference. And he started one of the largest producers of biochar and biochar production equipment for the lumber industry, biochar solutions. He's got his PhD in soil science from Berkeley. He actually wrote or co-wrote the standard for grading biochar. And we were having a beer one night and kind of talking about this idea, like, why are we still making biochar in these plants? Why isn't it in use everywhere? And we came to the conclusion that it was true. The capital cost of financing these plants is massive, and that bleeds into your per unit cost. And the cost of transporting feedstock is massive, and that bleeds into your cost. And then also the labor costs required are huge. And, you know, at the time, I was seeing firsthand how robotics were being used to reduce labor costs in the ag industry already. And I said, well, how can we address this? You know, could we really build this vision of, you know, the grazer of a system that could actually produce biochar in the field, just like a tiller or a combine harvester? And I think that that idea immediately resonated with both of us. And we've been collaborators a long time. We have very complementary skill sets. And you know, we decided, hey, let's let's start building something. And so we, you know, started building prototypes, small scale prototypes in my backyard. I think we're both, you know, very applied thinkers. We like to build and create. We started building prototypes of the system and, and realized, you know, the economics worked very well. If we could crack it and if we could get it to a scale, kind of the minimum viable scale for commercial agriculture, we could in fact produce high quality biochar cheaper than anybody else. And that was really how we started the company. And that was probably three years ago. And we've just really made tremendous progress since then. The grazer inspiration is is fascinating. You know, more and more climate solutions that I learn about really are inspired via biomimicry, right? Looking at how nature works today and trying to replicate it through technology in some ways. Absolutely. As to just trying to industrialize. So let's maybe take a step back and just have you described what is biochar? What is the product, not the product of your company, but what is biochar as a product? 
What is the the chemistry that it represents and how does it work? So at its core, biochar is a very pure form of pyrogenic carbon. So charcoal, as you would find in your barbecue grill, that is also a form of pyrogenic carbon. Pyrogenic carbon occurs when we have oxygen-starved combustion. So if you light a campfire, for instance, the flame in the campfire, it's not the burning of the wood. What's actually happening is you are converting the wood into char. And in that process, you release a gas, a combustible gas called pyrolysis gas. That's what actually creates the flame of a campfire. And then over time, as your wood converts to char, then that burns into ash because it's an open flame. It's not oxygen starved. But to make char, to make pyrogenic carbon, to make biochar, fundamentally what we do is we heat biomass to very high temperatures, anywhere from 500 to 1,000 or more degrees centigrade. Biomass meaning crop residue, corn husks, stalks and stems, leaves, Exactly, exactly. Anything you can grow is considered biomass. So any plant material. We heat it to very high temperatures and it degrades into this very pure form of carbon. And it turns out you can optimize this process by, by restricting the oxygen, by controlling the temperature and how quickly you ramp to that temperature. You can optimize to produce a very pure form of mineral carbon. And in fact, you can produce something that's almost similar to a graphite. And so the core idea, I guess, the way that biochar sequesters carbon as these plants grow, as they create the biomass, they're sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere. And they're turning that atmospheric carbon into biological carbon, the biomass. Now, normally on a farm, that material degrades. Either it's left in the field, it decomposes, or it gets burned. But in one or two years, about 99% of that carbon goes back into the atmosphere. And so the concept with biochar is you take that material, you convert it into this char, and you actually bury it in the soil. And, and what we find is by converting it into this mineral form of carbon, it's very hard for microbes in the soil to decompose that material, to break it down. And so we can actually extend the decomposition timeline of that material by hundreds or even thousands of years, depending on the conditions that you use to produce it. So you know, at its core, biochar is it's a pyrogenic carbon it is not charcoal. Charcoal and biochar are all forms of pyrogenic carbon. Charcoal is, is arguably less refined, a less cooked form of pyrogenic carbon. So biochar, it's, it's really, you know, it, it's fundamentally mineral carbon. And in agricultural purposes, then it serves as a soil amendment. You wouldn't want to grow crops in pure biochar because, again, you said microbes basically can't work in a biochar-laden, heavily laden soil. So it needs to be mixed in with existing soil is what I heard you say. And then I also heard you say that it can help reduce soil acidity. So presumably because it's carbon, it's heavily basic and it balances out the pH of an acidic soil. So thus can be used instead of, I guess most farmers today are dropping lime on their on their soil. So it can be used as an alternative to lime in terms of enabling healthy soils. That's right. Yeah. So to be clear, it's a soil amendment, and that's different from a fertilizer. A fertilizer is you know, a direct nutrient that plants absorb in the soil. An amendment is something that actually improves the health of the soil and the, improves the performance of the soil. So they're very different. They are both integral parts of commercial agriculture. So there's a variety of chemical soil amendments that are used in ag 
lime, as you've noted, is probably the most common. There are other amendments like peat, vermiculite, that also have other, other applications in agriculture. But yes, you're right. Lime is used to raise the pH of agricultural soils. So in the southern half of the United States, for instance, farmers generally look to raise the pH of their soil by about a quarter point. So we'll see applications of one ton of lime per acre is common. There's a pretty high variance there. If you go down to, say, Brazil, where we have very acidic soil, farmers are using eight tons or more per acre of lime. So quite a bit of variance. But, but yes, biochar has a number of agronomic properties that make it very attractive for farming. So number one, it is basic. And that's really due to, there's actually four chemical factors that influence the pH of the biochar. But the most important is in the pyrolysis process, you form carbonates on the surface of the biochar. So effectively, it's it, the same impact as lime. You know, it, it, it increases the pH of the soil. Biochar also has several other agronomic benefits that are really critical. It's so absorbent. I think a gram of biochar has something like the surface area of a single family home. So it's very absorbent. When you apply it to the soil, it increases the soil's nutrient retention and water retention. So that means you make inputs to your agriculture more effective. So you can use less water, you can maximize the efficiency and the utility of your fertilizer. There are other benefits of biochar. It increases what's called cation exchange capacity in the soil. So it makes it easier for plants to uptake nutrients. And it also reduces the bulk density of the soil, which helps to fight erosion. So really multifaceted. But Probably the biggest impact agronomically and the most immediate is the liming benefit of biochar. And one of the things, you know, I hear repeatedly is that we're at risk of topsoil, at least in the U.S., you know, only having so many cycles left just due to the abundance of chemical fertilizer that we're placing on our soils today and, you know, our general industrial agricultural practices around how we till. Absolutely. How does this play with that as well? Well, yeah, our practices for the past 50 to 100 years, they have not been regenerative. I mean, they really have negatively impacted the soil. So we are seeing topsoil loss in the Midwest. One thing that is concerning is traditionally, you know, geologically, we have acidic soils in the southern half of the U.S. Like in the Pacific Northwest, for instance, we actually have basic soils. The Midwest was traditionally neutral. I mean, this is the best soil in the world. But what we have seen over the past 10 to 20 years is virtually every ag extension in the Midwest now recommends a liming protocol. And I mean, you can deny the evidence if you want. I mean, you can deny what's right in front of you, but it is clear we're seeing topsoil loss and acidification in the Midwest. And to me, that's, that's a big problem. I mean, we are very fortunate that we have the best soils in the world by far. That's an asset we need to protect. I mean, it's fundamentally, it's a security issue. And so, yeah, we are seeing every virtually every ag extension in the Midwest is recommending liming protocols now because that's what we're seeing. And and in a place like China, for instance, where you know I've done a lot of work as well, virtually 100% of their agricultural soils are acidic now, and that's entirely due to practices. It's not based on geology, so it is a big problem. And what's really cool about biochar is. This is actually how we built the soils of the Great Plains that we leverage today for our agricultural productivity. These were built by millennia of grassland fires. These are, you know, these are fundamentally native prairies, native grasslands. And traditionally, 
they would burn over every year. The grasslands would burn. And that deposits, you know, maybe one, two percent carbon as pyrogenic carbon. And you do this, this happens for thousands and thousands of years, you end up with the best soil in the world. So biochar is, is fundamentally kind of recreating that process and, and reintroducing fire to our agricultural soils. I grew up in Kansas and farmers there still burn their fields. I assume that biochar is creating a more pure version of just, you know, openly burning the field again because of that oxygen starvation that you talk exactly, about. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, an open burn returns maybe one or two percent of the biomass carbon as pyrogenic carbon. Biochar production, it's more like 50% or higher depending on your process. So yeah, it's really just supercharging that natural process. And how does other soil-based climate solutions like enhanced rock weathering with basalt rock being spread on soils, does that play positively with biochar? Would a farmer eventually want to practice both nature-based practices for their soils? Yeah, so they're certainly not mutually exclusive. You can do both. There's there's no reason you can't, and there's no reason you shouldn't. I think there is a geographic aspect to it. With ERW, your economics fundamentally depend on you know how close you are to the quarry or to the supply of material because it's heavy stuff. I think also what I've seen in the latest literature is there is a lot of evidence that ERW has an agronomic impact in tropical soils, which are highly weathered, highly acidic. The results so far are inconclusive regarding temperate soils, which represents, you know, the United States, North America. So I think at this point, you know, it's unclear if there's an agronomic benefit to doing that in commercial soils, but they're certainly not mutually exclusive. I think the one thing to be mindful of in ag, farmers are very concerned about soil compaction. And that's part of the reason that we have taken this infield in situ approach. Every time you pass a heavy piece of equipment over soil, farmers see that as depreciation of their asset because it is compacting the soil and that does have a direct impact on yields. So I think that's something that's is important to be mindful of. You know, maybe there's a way to combine the two techniques to minimize passes. I, I don't know, but I think that's the main thing to be to be thoughtful of with those types of technologies. We're going to take a short break right now so our partner Yin can share more about the MCJ membership option. Hey folks, Ian here, a partner at MCJ Collective. Want to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have since then grown to 2,000 members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with differing backgrounds and perspectives. And while those perspectives are different, what we all share in common is a deep curiosity to learn and bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, nonprofits have been established, a bunch of hiring has been done, many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. So whether you've been in climate for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, back to the show. And before we dive deep into you know your business and, and the products that you're building, maybe just give us the history of biochar in ag, not like the ancient history of you know using it in you know in the Amazon rainforest, but in the U.S. in current industrial ag forms. You know, you mentioned 
there've been some economic challenges in that it's, you know, attempted to be made in these large scale pyrolysis plants. Is it used today? Where is it used? And, you know, sort of what does that business look like right now? Obviously, you're out there trying to disrupt it and prove that there's a better way of doing it. But I'm, I'm curious what the state of biochar looks like today. Yeah. So I would say the modern resurgence of biochar, it's been probably 15 to 20 years that it's been getting a lot of interest. And one thing that surprised me the other day, there have literally been over 20,000 peer-reviewed studies on biochar in that time frame, which I think makes it one, if not the most studied CDR technology ever, which is really fascinating. And I would say in terms of kind of the industry, it's primarily produced today in repurposed bioenergy plants. So there are, I think, between 30 and 60 plants in the U.S. designed to produce bioenergy from wood chips or from wood pellets. And Oftentimes they're located near like a lumber operation or forestry operation or something like that. And you do get as a byproduct of that process, pyrogenic carbon, you get biochar out as a byproduct. And that's the primary source of biochar production today. There are a handful- so these, these are utility scale power plants that are just because they are located near a heavy bio waste producing facility, they're actually using biomass as the energy source. Correct. Correct. And there's a handful of companies building, you know, dedicated systems for making biochar, typically kind of medium scale on the scale of a few tons per day, 10 tons per day. But the bulk of the supply in the U.S. either comes from those facilities or it's imported from other countries. And generally, the price floor in the U.S. for cost of goods, so like at the plant, is like three to $400 a ton because it's still quite expensive. You know, you still have to procure those feedstocks and, and transport them to the plant. But then the challenge becomes you have to get the biochar out into the field as well. And these bioenergy plants are not necessarily located in Nebraska either. And so when you take into account all of the costs that are associated with with transporting that material and logistics and everything, it really drives up the cost. And then, and then you factor in other aspects like packaging the material and spreading it and preparing it. And when it finally gets to the farmer, the farmer all in, once, once they have biochar in the ground, it's anywhere from 600 to $1,000 a ton all in to the farmer. And as a result, it's primarily used in high value crops where they can support that kind of price. And six hundred to a thousand dollars a ton, how does that compare to, you know, a basic soil amendment like like liming the soil as an example? Liming, you are typically spending here, you know, in Texas, a farmer might spend seventy-five to a hundred dollars per acre, you know, for, for a ton of lime, including delivery and spreading. So it's so, more expensive, give or take. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So that really presents a challenge because ag is notoriously conservative, slow to adopt new practices and new technologies. And, you know, it just really presents a conundrum because you got to get the material out there. And, and right now, the only way to do that is, is trucking it into the field. And so in my view, that's really limited adoption of biochar technology. It has to make economic sense at the end of the day. So 
talk to us about what you're building. Maybe start with a like an actual physical description of the of the machines that you are creating just to help because we don't have visuals in front of us we're listening just to help us understand what this what this looks like. Sure. So what we set out to create at Climate Robotics is the world's first in-field continuous pyrolysis system. We realize that the economics of centralized production are challenging, but even the economics of distributed production become challenging. So if you were to set up a plant in Iowa or even at the edge of a farm, you're still paying quite a bit to harvest material, transport it, process it, get it back out into the field. And it results in multiple passes over the soil with heavy equipment. And I mentioned before, that's really a barrier to a lot of farmers. Soil compaction is really a barrier. So for us, the goal was, you know, this really needs to operate like a grazer. It needs to run in the field. And so what we've built is an implement that attaches to the back of a standard agricultural tractor. So think your big green tractor we have a system that's mounted onto the chassis of a grain cart. So it attaches to the back of the tractor and it's pulled by the tractor. It is a heavy industrial machine. It's a series of of tubes and conveyors that move material through this process. And what it fundamentally does, the tractor has an implement on the front end called a forage harvester. And that's an off-the-shelf agricultural implement that is used to harvest material, to harvest waste biomass from the field. So after the combine passes over the field and leaves all this refuse on the ground, we come in with our system and scoop it up. So the harvester scoops up that material, conveys it to our pyrolyzer, and our pyrolyzer processes that material down to size. So the first step is there's actually a biomass chopping mechanism on board, and then the chopped material is conveyed into our reactor. And the reactor is what actually produces the biochar. So the system, it's a continuous flow reactor. It continuously converts the raw biomass into biochar. And then on the back end of the trailer of the grain cart, that's where we actually deposit the biochar back into the soil. We use an off-the-shelf tilling implement called a disker or disking harrow, which it looks like a a series of toothed wheels that are towed behind the system that then mixes the biochar in with the top 10 centimeters of the soil. So it fundamentally looks like another piece of agricultural equipment that you would find on a farm, but instead of, you know, tilling or planting, it's it's producing biochar. And after the normal harvesting, when you have this just waste biomass laying on the field, what would be the typical pass over that the farmer would do with a tractor? in between then and the next time they're readying the field for planting? So for us, we typically come in one to two weeks after the crop has been harvested because we like to let the residue dry out a little bit. That makes the process more efficient. At that point, you know, generally the field is left fallow until they're going to get ready for planting the next cycle. So the reality is most farmers aren't doing much with this residue. They're either just letting it break down Sometimes many of them will conduct a light till or sometimes a full inversion till where they actually mix it in. So in many cases, we're replacing a light till or a full inversion till, but really not much happens during that time. Otherwise, the soil is just left to kind of lie fallow and regenerate until planting for the next season. 
Got it. And so, so just to make sure I can spit back what I heard you say, farmer has a regular old tractor. The front of the tractor has an implement that they already have on the front of the tractor, which is scooping up the stocks and leftover residue from harvesting. It's got some kind of chute that shoots it over the tractor into a big container that the tractor's hauling. That container chops this stuff up, pyrolyzes it, burns it, converts it to biochar, and then spits it out the back end where you have these little disc wheels that that basically till it into the soil and mix it in with the existing soil. Exactly right. Yep, exactly. There are parts, you know, looking on your website, there are parts of the process where you you tout that you have, you know, autonomous components to what you do. Maybe explain how autonomy fits into the the overall model here also. So there's two aspects to the autonomy. One, well, the fundamental goal of autonomy is labor reduction at the end of the day. So on the one side, we use process control and software to automate the pyrolysis process itself, because the reality is it's not trivial to convert agricultural residues into anything. The reason farmers don't do much with them is because they're hard to work with. So we have a lot of process control logic and automation in the pyrolyzer itself, because the feedstock is not homogenous. The consistency changes, the composition changes. We have to adjust the pyrolysis process in real time in response to that. So we leverage automation on the pyrolyzer itself, first of all, uh, to produce a consistent product that meets spec from you know this bulk agricultural residue feedstock. The other aspect to automation is actually operating the tractor and the navigation. So our goal over time is to make this process fully autonomous and fully hands-off because you know, we believe that to get the best economics, humans shouldn't be, you know, driving the system. I mean, that's if we really want to drive down the cost of sequestration, we have to do everything we can. And tractor automation is, is pretty mature these days. You can buy a kit today, a retrofit kit for a tractor to make it semi-autonomous at this point. A lot of combines now have actually autonomous grain bins running side by side with them. That's all based on GPS and various sensors in the tractor. So that technology is fairly mature and it's getting better over time. Our business plan and our strategy is to increasingly leverage automation to make this completely hands-off so that instead of having an operator in the cab of the tractor, we can have a safety operator with a tablet in the field managing a fleet of these. And, And that's really that's how we get to scale. That's how we get to service 10,000, 20,000 acre commercial farms. It sounds like that last piece isn't necessarily a biochar problem, though. That's just an agricultural machinery problem that is yeah, being advanced exactly. across the industry. Are you actually making the, the tractors themselves today or are farmers using their own tractors and, and using you as an implement on the tractors? Today, we have our own tractor. I mean, we didn't build it, but we have an off-the-shelf tractor that we modify for this application and an off-the-shelf harvesting implement. So today, we own and operate all of our equipment. Over oh, time, you even yeah. operate it today. We like, do. So, yeah, exactly. So this isn't like I'm just, I've got a, you know, a barn that I've got my tractor in and I remove my, you know, my harvester and plug in my biochar. This is actually a separate entire end-to-end machine that I'm driving. Not yet, I would say. If you look at a commodity like lime, most farmers, particularly, you know, farms at around the median size in the U.S., which is a thousand acres, they don't own a lime spreader. They use lime almost every season, but they don't own a lime spreader because it's something you might use once a year. So generally, they're contracting that service to either a co-op or a retailer in their region who then 
comes and offers that as a service. So this is pretty common. And, and oftentimes it's not something people are familiar with outside of the ag industry, but this is a pretty common model. Over time, as we evolve the equipment, you know, make it more user-friendly, yeah, there, there may be an opportunity to either sell these systems directly to large farms, or what I think makes more sense is selling or leasing them to the co-ops and the retailers who already provide these services to farmers. Got it. So for now, the business model is truly biochar as a service. Like I assume they pay you a negotiated amount or a contracted amount for the amount of acreage they have. And you show up with your machines, do the work and drive away. Yeah. So today, actually, because there is so much excitement in the carbon removal market, we are able to leverage those markets and the carbon credits we generate to really get to scale fast. One of the big reasons agriculture is challenging to crack is that farmers are super conservative and they're really slow to adopt new solutions. And we've been able to short circuit that really by, by leveraging carbon finance. So we can cover the cost of our operations through the price of CO2 today and through the credits we generate. And, and we can even share some of that revenue with the farmer. And so that really makes it attractive to the farmer. Now, over time, yes, we know we're delivering agronomic value to the farmer and we intend to monetize them just like lime, just like all other inputs that they're using. But for now, given the high price of carbon, it's really given us an opportunity to get to scale very, very quickly, faster than you could with kind of a, an input that has no carbon benefit. So to a farmer, are you cheaper than you mentioned these lining services that show up and do soil amendments? Are you are you cheaper than that for them? And, and are they are you planning that like is your business model that you would actually replace that for them in the near term? Exactly. At scale, we can be cost competitive or cheaper than chemical alternatives. We're not there yet. I mean, we're still at a relatively small scale, but we have a path to do that. And and thanks to the carbon markets as they are, we're able to get to scale quickly. To some extent with the carbon markets, is there a proven buying model for biochar? Is it biochar as a product or is it actual based on soil sequestration and permanence of the on the per acre basis that you're able to sell as a credit? So today there are several established methodologies actually, both there's there's some that are active and there's some that are in development for soil-based carbon sequestration with biochar. They're all fundamentally the same. They're actually all based on the standard for which Morgan, my co-founder, was a co-author. So the core concept is you test the biochar to measure its stability in the soil. Effectively, what you're measuring is how cooked it is. And you have to meet a minimum spec in that regard to ensure that enough of the carbon will stay sequestered over the desired length of time. And so you do that. And then you also have to have your pyrolysis equipment tested. You have to run an LCA, a, a life cycle you know, carbon analysis on your, your equipment to determine what the emissions associated with your process are. Once you have all that data, the methodologies have an equation. You plug all the information in and you determine a net carbon sequestration for each ton of biochar that you apply to the soil. And all of those costs, both of the measurement and verification, as well as the equipment testing are baked into the, the total unit, unit economics then that you're, you know, exactly. you haven't exactly. quoted a price, but you said can get to the point of being cost comparable with a with an existing soil amendment. Solution. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's all baked in. And one of the great things about biochar 
from the MRV perspective is it's pretty lightweight, honestly. A challenge with a lot of soil carbon and forestry carbon solutions is you have to go every year and monitor them to make sure the carbon is still there. Biochar, because it is considered stable in the soil, you know, once you've had your char tested, once you've verified the tonnage that you put in the ground, the methodologies consider it, it's, it's done, it's there. So yeah. the, the farmers aren't having to sign some kind of affidavit that they're not going to do something for the next exactly. N number of years or anything. It doesn't really matter. Exactly. And, and that's a big problem in farming. We've talked to a lot of farmers who've done like no-till, for instance, and or they've done rotational grazing or cover cropping, which it requires the farmer to do a lot of work. And in many cases, they said they did the work and they didn't end up getting paid because at the end of the day, the MRV cost was higher than the cost of the carbon credit and the farmer just ended up with nothing. So it's a big challenge. It's a big challenge. But I think biochar really, it makes a lot more sense in that regard. And you talked a little bit about this a few minutes ago, but I want to come back to the complexities of both the inputs and the complexities of the terrain, which I assume both are big factors in your machine. You're trying to build an autonomous system that can move this material, you know, up over the tractor, chop it up, turn it into appropriate biochar and put it in the ground. I assume dealing with, you know, a corn stalk versus, uh, you know, soybean residue is quite different. I assume, you know, working on farmland versus ranch land, you know, terrain in Western Kansas versus terrain in California is quite different, et cetera. How do these factor in and are you trying to approach a very specific market to start and scale out from there? Or are you trying to be able to solve all of these things at once? Yeah, I mean, you can't solve everything at once. The good thing about it is, so we've tested all those feedstocks you mentioned and and they all work well. What really is unique is you have to modify your pre-processing depending on the feedstock. So the actual harvesting implement there's some slight modifications depending on what you're harvesting. And then the actual biomass chopping and processing is sort of feedstock specific, but those are kind of solved problems in agriculture already. Now, the, the beauty of commercial ag is that, you know, you're not generally growing three different crops on the same acre. It's pretty much monocropping. So that makes our job a little bit easier. In terms of where we're focusing, we mainly focus on corn and also rice straw to start because those are some of the most abundant producers of waste, of residues, and they work very well with kind of off-the-shelf harvesting equipment. And presumably if you're the ones owning and operating these, you're also taking a geographic focused approach to start because of the logistics involved. Yeah, so far all of our projects have been in Texas and Arkansas, mainly just that's where we're based, but our equipment's mobile. You know, you can tow this on any state road with a standard F-350 pickup truck. So our vision is ultimately that over time, these can kind of follow the harvest because, you know, in Texas, they'll start harvesting their corn several months before Nebraska or the Dakotas will start harvesting their corn. So there really is the opportunity to maximize utility of the equipment by moving north. And, and again, that's something that already happens in agriculture. Agricultural equipment is very expensive. Farmers and owners of that equipment are always looking to maximize utility. And as a, you know, I'm skipping around a little bit, but as a credit, you know, we talked about the permanency already. You said, hey, look, look down in the Amazon, you know, you dig up soil that's had biochar burned into it a thousand years ago and it's still there. So, you know, it feels like permanency is factor is high. The additionality factor, I assume, is high today. If it becomes cheaper than soil amendments, that may become a question over time. And then, you know, I'm curious 
how you view cost just relative to other sequestration methods from a pure credit perspective. So almost regardless of the farmer being involved as just a another methodology that we can use to sequester CO2, how do you view cost scaling on a per ton basis? Well, kind of our price target for a ton of CO2 is that we believe over time, a ton of CO2, the price will probably converge at around 50 bucks for you know, kind of high permanent solutions. So a hundred years or more, the price is probably going to converge to 50 bucks. I, I don't think the environment of $600 a ton CO2 is, is sustainable long-term. I, mean, I don't think anybody does. I've talked to the heads of carbon and sustainability at many, many of the largest corporations in the world. And they've said point blank, yeah, if it's 50 bucks a ton, we can probably do it. If it's more, our business won't work. And I think we have to be realistic about that. So that's the target. We have a path and line of sight to deliver tonnage at a cost below that. So we believe we can operate profitably if carbon revenue is our only revenue source at scale. And I think that's something that a lot of other technologies are going to struggle with because they're fundamentally depending on either massive scale up of very low cost renewable energy or some massive change in the cost of logistics, transportation, or something else. They're depending on a step change, technological innovation that someone else is developing. We're not, we don't depend on that. And in fact, we're even able to operate at the very high fuel prices we're seeing right now, which hopefully are an anomaly. So, so yes, we do have line of sight to operate exclusively off of the carbon revenue now, long-term, we are very optimistic that we can also generate revenue from the agronomic benefits of biochar. And, and to the point of additionality, yeah, I mean, I think if we get to a point where we can build a billion-dollar business off of the agronomic benefit alone, that's a great problem to have. And, you know, I guess obviously there's a dependency on building the business based on carbon credits that the actual methodology gets fully adopted and traded in the market which it sounds like there's progress being made on, but we're not quite there yet. Is that correct? Yeah. So there are active methodologies and we are selling our credits. We, we sell to some of the biggest corporations in the world, actually. And we have, you know, long-term offtake agreements as well. So yeah, so that's already there. And there's actually two methodologies being developed, one by Vera, one by Climate Action Reserve, which are the two big certifying bodies currently. So there's a lot of enthusiasm around this. And I think people are really waking up to the fact that that biochar, it really is a very reasonably priced option for sequestering carbon. I mean, I guess at scale, you know, it sounds like you view yourselves as as a carbon credit company, most likely, but that you have the opportunity to be a biochar, you know, sales business, you know, in the future, if you want to. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Ultimately, we will have blended revenue streams. We'll do both over time. I think that puts us in the in the best position, but it also gives us tremendous optionality because like nobody knows how carbon markets are going to evolve. I think we're definitely encouraged. We see tailwinds that the Inflation Reduction Act allocated $20 billion for carbon or climate smart ag, for instance, of which biochar is a technique. So we definitely see tailwinds out there and we see, you know. The biochar industry is so different from where it was 15 years ago. But that said, you know, no one knows. I mean, you can't really predict how markets are going to evolve. And, and that's why we really, we really focused on kind of the dual value stream and maintaining optionality there. 
And you mentioned a few off-take agreements that you have. Maybe give us some sense of where you are today from a deployment traction perspective, you know, the number of tons you're sequestering right now and sort of what the commercial traction of the business looks like to the extent you can share. Yeah. Well, what's public is we completed our first year of deliveries with Microsoft, who's actually one of the largest buyers of both carbon credits broadly and biochar credits. So we delivered a thousand tons of CO2 to Microsoft. We completed that delivery in June of this year. And I can't say what is next, only that we're really happy and, you know, really excited about what, what is coming next, I guess, is all I can say at this point. And how have you financed the business to date? So we finance it. I mean, we're generating revenue, first of all. So we generate revenue from the sale of the credits. And then we've also raised grant funding and then have some private investors as well. And, you know, do you expect over time to fund the, I mean, you have a very CapEx heavy business, you're building agricultural machinery. Do you expect over time to figure out some you know, project financing based solutions for funding the ongoing build out of your machinery? Absolutely. You know, now that we're getting long-term purchase agreements and offtake agreements in place, we can capitalize those with debt, just like, you know, any other piece of industrial equipment. So yes, we absolutely do intend to capitalize the scale up of the equipment with debt. Now, what is potentially really exciting is ag is unique in the US. If you go buy a, you know, a green or a red tractor, big green or big red tractor, because the USDA recognizes the importance of that equipment to the ag industry, they actually guarantee those loans. So you are able to get generally a loan with 0% interest for that type of ag equipment backed by USDA. And there's a number of banks that will finance that. And so our hope is that over time, as the agronomic value of biochar is more known and as broadly this, this climate smart agriculture concept takes off, maybe we could do the same with pyrolysis equipment or biochar production equipment. So that's our long-term hope. And we're doing everything we can to raise awareness of this technology, you know, with folks in Washington, et cetera. And you're pioneering a lot of this right now, particularly the kind of infield grazer model. But at the end of the day, it's mechanical equipment. Like if it works, I would expect there will be other players in the you know mechanical equipment ag space that try to do similar things. How do you view that from a from a competitive moat perspective? Yeah. Well, first of all, we've been very aggressive at filing patents. Morgan and I have been in the technology industry long enough. We know how important they are. So we filed our first provisionals before we talked to anyone about this company. And those claims were recently allowed by the patent office. And you know we filed it several years ago. Uh, it takes a while to kind of work through the patent office, but our core foundational patent will now be issued as a matter of course. And we're really excited about that. And that really protects our core innovation of a mobile continuous pyrolysis system. It also protects, you know, it's not just kind of mobile biochar production, it's really all aspects of pyrolysis in field, continuous pyrolysis. So, you know, we believe that that really protects the foundational IP of the company. And we continue to be very aggressive in filing patents. So I think that's one aspect of defensibility that's very important. And we filed international protection as well. The second aspect is really it's non-trivial to do this also. Like I said before, pyrolyzing ag waste, even in a stationary system, is hard. On our team, our founding team, we have over 45 years of experience building these systems. Our CTO, Dan, has his PhD in mechanical engineering. He's also a veteran of the biochar industry. 
and he's been building pyrolysis equipment for 15 years. So to replicate this, you would kind of need to clone us. There just aren't that many people that know how to build these systems and operate them at scale. There's also really a data moat that we're building because again, it's, it's non-trivial to produce char to a particular spec from these mixed feedstocks. And as we get more and more hours with the equipment, we just improve that model and we improve our process model and our reliability. So I think if a competitor did decide to say, okay, you know what, we're going to infringe, we're just going to do it. It would still take them a long time to get where we've been and to replicate our expertise. And then I guess the last thing is just the relationships. You know, there's a limited number of farmers in this country and in the world, and there's a limited number of buyers of these credits. And we're really working aggressively to build those relationships and build them long-term as well. Jason, thank you so much. What didn't I ask that I should have asked for clarification on? Well, yeah, I think, I don't know. I think one question that I get a lot with biochar is like, what is the actual permanence? You know, how long is the carbon there? And, you know, I had someone say to me recently, isn't biochar kind of controversial? And I reflected on that comment a lot. And at the end of the day, I was like, what do you really mean? I mean, that's what led me to realize there have been over 20,000 peer-reviewed studies on biochar. And I looked up other CDR technologies, most have zero. And I said, well, surely there's some correlation between peer review and, and you know how vetted the technology is. So I think it's really interesting. I think one of the things that a lot of people struggle with with biochar is it's just, it's a very intuitive solution. You know, part of, I think, indigenous knowledge is it's often based on intuition first. And it's sometimes hard to grok in our world today, like the value of intuition and the value of that wisdom. But you know, at the end of the day, I mean, it really is probably the most thoroughly studied CDR solution that we have. And I do think that's incredibly important because when we talk about scaling this stuff up, any of these technologies and investing billions of dollars in it, you got to be sure it's going to work and you got to be sure it's going to scale. And I, I think that's really an asset to biochar. And then, yeah, on the permanent side, what we know is that the current methodologies require a permanence of at least 100 years. So you have to deliver at or above that spec. And we're now at a point where it's been studied so long that there are seven and 10 year field trials available now. I mean, that's something that you can't recreate that except by doing it. And what we're seeing based on those studies, what I think is most interesting are there's actually a lot of papers where they use radioisotopes of carbon to label the biochar, and then they can track how that carbon moves through the ecosystem you know, over decades. And so far, those papers are showing actually around 4,000 years of permanence, which squares with what we see in the archaeological record as well. So I do think over the next five years, we're going to really unlock a lot of data showing that, you know, what everybody thinks is true, that, that biochar really is permanent for millennia in the soil. And it's really important because we're going to have thousands of studies backing that, and we're going to have data that really supports that. So, so I think the biochar train is getting a lot of steam, suffice to say. <laughs> well, and for those who want to jump on the train, Jason, where do you need help right now? Everywhere. I would say that the main areas right now, software controls and electrical engineering anybody who wants to work on automation or process controls. And then also we're starting to hire on the business side. 
both selling the carbon credits and building the relationships with farmers and recruiting farmers. So anyone who wants to get involved there, who maybe has less of the engineering technical background, that's where we're really starting to scale up also. Jason, I so appreciate you joining us today, sharing more Thank about you, what Cody. you're building. Great. And I learned a ton. Great, really appreciate it. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. To do this, we focus on three main pillars. Content, like this podcast and our weekly newsletter. Capital, to fund companies that are working to address climate change. And our member community, to bring people together, as Yen described earlier. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at www.mcjcollective.com. And if you have guest suggestions, feel free to let us know on Twitter at MCJPod. Thanks, and see you next episode.